Welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. This year, Ash 2020 was held as a virtual event. However, this did not detract from the amazing standard of data and presentations that were shared. Today, four leading researchers will discuss and debate the hottest developments in the treatment and management of MDS as presented at Ash 2020. The topics discussed include the evolving MDS treatment strategy, immune checkpoint inhibitors, as well as therapies for higher risk and lower risk MDS. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you in another uh, episode of our uh, MDS sessions at VG Himong. And today we'll be talking about highlights of the American Society of Hematology meeting, the 62nd uh, meeting that was just held virtually a few days ago. And it's a pleasure to be discussing a lot of important um, abstracts and new developments. I have a highly esteemed panel with me, uh, including investigators who presented some of the most important data in in the meeting, and uh, we'll be discussing all of that. So I have Dr. Jacqueline Garcia, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard School of Medicine. uh, And she focuses on uh, understanding and studying the apoptosis pathways in myeloid malignancies. I have Dr. Ove Platzbecker, who's uh, director of hematology and cell therapy section in the University Hospital of Leipzig and a very known investigator uh, leading a lot of trials in in the myelodysplastic uh, syndrome space. And last but not least, I have uh, Dr. Andrew Brunner, who is also an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, and he leads uh, MDS clinical research uh, within the Mass General uh, Hospital program. Thank you all for joining me. And I will probably start by getting your uh, impressions of the virtual experience. Uh, This is the first time uh, for Ash, of course. You know, we've been having a multiple number um, of meetings throughout uh, looking at uh, uh, different uh, presentations virtually. But for Ash, for such a large uh, meeting, I think this was the first experience. So maybe we can start with uh, Jacqueline and go around in terms of your impressions Yes, uh, thanks so much for having me. Again, my name is Jacqueline Garcia. I'm one of the adult leukemia investigators at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I'm an instructor in medicine, but thanks for the virtual promotion. I appreciate that. Um, This was a really uh, interesting ash year. Um, I would say one of the benefits that I think that a lot of us appreciated is that we were able to go to more abstracts and see them firsthand hear the Q&A, more abstracts than usual. I probably saw two and a half times as uh, more abstracts because I was able to see them. I could rewind, rewatch, and not have missed uh, any any of the abstracts that were occurring in parallel or on opposite sides of the building. Uh, So I I really appreciated that aspect. That also made it a bit uh, overwhelming with the information overload. And so uh, a lot of pluses and minuses. And I think um, it was a little bit more mentally exhausting because we were able to take in more data. Um, I would say definitely one of the best uh, aspects of ASH that we all appreciate is the ability to network in person and collaborate. And that part is uh, definitely missed by not having the face-to-face contact. So I know a lot of us are looking forward to being able to be in person um, potentially in the next year, but the ability to see these abstracts at such a big forum to answer questions live, um, I think was really wonderful. Yeah, and the only thing I just wanted to pipe in there, I completely agree with you, uh, Dr. Zayden. It's been so exciting in the MDS uh, field, much like, you know, 
with acute myeloid leukemia and MDS, we have essentially been uh, those left on the bench for the last several years, um, waiting for our turn to have some exciting therapies. And AML has certainly had a few uh, exciting uh, plays in the last couple of years. And now I think it's MDS's turn where we finally have some really exciting treatments that are available. And there's a lot of heated discussion on which one is really going to be the home run for patients. And it's just nice to hear that there are options. It's great to see some exciting safety data. It's good to see really uh, incredible responses that are meaningful to patients. So it's been, it's been really great over the last couple of years to see what's been playing out. Yeah, thanks, Jacqueline. And I'm pretty sure the promotion is going to be coming soon because <laughs> of all the great work you've been doing. Um, <laughs> So, Uwe, um, anything you want to add? This was a pretty comprehensive answer from uh, Jacqueline. Yeah, I mean, let's say it this way. I think this kind of ash meeting has pros and cons. And, uh, of course, uh, I mean, if, if the meeting would have been uh, um, scheduled for Atlanta, uh, I, would, I would have been preferred to have it as a complete virtual meeting. But this time it was to, scheduled to be in San Diego. So, but <laughs> a, a, along, I mean, again, uh, apart from making jokes, I think the, um, this kind of event, also the EHA before, showed us that virtual meetings are possible and they have... I think the access to data and the access to uh, also uh, a lot of presentations with with the rewind function is is uh, tremendous, and I think selection therefore uh, and preferences are very important to make al already in advance. Uh, what I really liked at, with the Ash meeting uh, this time was the way the posters were presented because you know you know this poster walk at Ash is like four thousand posters, and you are in, in one hand you have the beer, the other hand you have the pretzel. Uh, and actually, after like <laughs> 200 posters, you have you have another pretzel and another beer. So uh, all, all I want to say is that the granularity of the poster is not is not very easy to get uh, with the poster walk, and you are also uh, sometimes uh, uh, connected to people you you are involved into talk. So I think the way the posters were introduced this time with a five or six slides, five minute presentation, I think is a is a very interesting format, and this I think needs to be kept uh, for also for future meetings, uh, because you have also access to the entire poster because uh, it's it's also in a virtual format. Uh, but to 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 summarize what is presented at the poster in a little presentation, I think makes it uh, also more um, more haptic. You know, you really get access to the to, to the to the to the PI to the to the person who basically generated the data, uh, and it's not only slash only a, 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 a poster presentation. So. Um, all, all um, well, let's say to summarize, I would really love to, to shake your hand, Amor, uh, at the next uh, ASH meeting. I would really like to, uh, uh, to have a glass of beer with you at the next uh, meeting, whatever. But I think this kind of format is, uh, especially if, per if performed in a hybrid way, is the future. I'm pretty sure about it. Because the plethora of meetings we are involved in and the plethora of meetings which uh, required presence uh, before uh, is no longer uh, possible for us. Also, because we sometimes we ha I always make the joke. Sometimes I have to work, you know, and 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 can't travel. 
so I think this this will al allow us to be more interactive, uh, also to also to uh, exchange more data, present more data in a in a different way, but be at different places and still can do the work at home. Um, but on the other side, traveling to a certain place, especially for for us Europeans going to the US, gives you also a a real break you know you are really out uh, and uh, now with these virtual zoom meetings uh, i think uh, you know people think that you are accessible 24 7 because you know it's just a zoom you can do the zoom 8 p.m or 9 p.m at night it's, it's not a problem so i think this brings us into trouble and we need to be uh, cautious sorry a long statement but uh, i thought the the question is was not easy to answer no i think you bring up the great points beyond just uh Ash, I mean, I guess Ash was based on uh, on the Pacific uh, Coast timing, so it was starting 10 a.m. for us on the East Coast, 7 a.m. on on uh, on the West Coast. But for Europe, it was starting also later, and some of the sessions went later at night. And I think, as as you mentioned, some of the meetings, the investigator meetings, and other meetings we've been doing. Some uh, I was with Andrew recently on one at 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning, and it definitely has been. Uh, a little bit challenging and I like you I do miss that uh, aspect of um, the break that comes with the actual meetings where you travel to a place and you know kind of um, not vacation but at least you know having some some break from from the routine of, of work so that aspect has definitely been missing Andrew anything else uh, you like to add to all of this what more can I add? I mean, I think that um, a lot of points have been said that are um, true. We all are missing in-person uh, meetings and the chance to connect. I think um, I might just note that as virtual meetings have gone on, they have become, I think, better um, and they've learned from the prior experience. Um, I agree with the poster um, format and also I think that the way that questions were handled during the oral sessions was really um, the curation by the moderators and the ability to answer more questions per session, I thought was really a nice aspect of how the format uh, lent itself to that kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of presentation with the an interaction with the speakers. I wish that that kind of interaction could also be carried into the poster sessions because while the data was much better managed, I think, by using these short um, five minute presentations just made me want to chat with the presenter about it, uh, which um, is hard to do. Um, may, I'm sure things will evolve and I'm looking forward to in-person sessions, but I think that they learned a lot from the um, conferences that had come before and um, are definitely uh, have some aspects that I hope they keep um, going forward. Yeah, very well said. It sounds like there's a consensus that nobody wants back completely to, to the old ways, but keeping a hybrid format where you have most of the data kind of available after the meeting for easy access, but maintaining uh, an in-person component for networking and, and all of that. So um, I guess we'll delve into the data and I'm going to introduce myself because I always forget to introduce myself in these calls. So my name is Amr Zaidan and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine at Yale University and uh, Director of Hematology Early Therapeutics Research focusing on MDS and AML as well. So Andrew, I'll probably start with you since I know again in these panels, the person who gets uh, to answer after everybody answers always uh, feels left out, not much more to add. So I'll start with you. I think globally for MDS, um, 
um, as a disease. And you've been seeing how things are evolving in uh, acute myeloid leukemia, where we are going now into the doublets for older patients with all with acute leukemia, and already starting with triplet trials. And people are making comparisons to multiple myeloma, where you are going to the doublets, triplets, even quadruplets, and completely oral therapy and outpatient management, all of that. And uh, comparisons are being already drawn in the MDS world where we've been using only hypomethylating agents. And now a lot of the development has been focusing on doublets, and, but people are already talking about triplets and you know potentially complete oral therapies. And so how do you see the field um, going forward? I guess keeping in mind that MDS patients on average are around 10 years older than ML patients. Many of them are in 70s, many of them are more frail and more comorbidities, and do you think this is a realistic view? Sure, I think that um, it's, a, it's a great question, and it was an exciting meeting for that reason. I think that all of a sudden, where um, AML and other uh, non-myeloid uh, malignancies have had um, really a lot of growth in new therapeutics and uh, subgroups with targeted agents um, and novel ways to incorporate those therapies, MDS has been hard to improve upon azacitidine or decidabine alone. And in some part, uh, you bring up a good point with the patient population. These are older patients. By the time, I think the intergroup study showed how it can be challenging to move therapies that are effective in small cohorts of patients into a larger um, treatment setting. Um, even if you look at how azacitidine or decidabine are used as monotherapy, we know that they're underutilized in the general population, and we know that uh, the dosing that is typically used is not that, that which was studied um, uh, often is, uh, reduced in dose. Uh, and uh, transplant as well um, is underutilized uh, if you look broadly um, in MDS, which is notable given some of the uh, studies that were presented at ASH this year as well. So I think that we have a gap both in how effectively we administer the therapies that we already have, but then that has been a limitation to how we move forward with um, novel therapeutics in this disease. And um, suddenly there are a number of agents which have novel targets um, that are slightly different or used in a slightly different way than um, other myeloid diseases. We've learned a lot from AML previously, but suddenly there are drugs that seem like they may be um, as, if not more focused toward an MDS type of population. And those studies are moving further into development where you can actually see that perhaps we will have a chance to redesign how we treat uh, patients. Um, and I think that the next step, yes, will probably be some form of doublet based uh, approach that, um, uh, I think it's an open question whether that will be continuous throughout the treatment until progression, or if we'll have different phases of treatment, more like myeloma, where we try to obtain a remission and then we do something that's more of a maintenance type of therapy. And these are studies that we need to be ready to perform. Um, but um, suddenly there are studies moving into phase three that seem like they might have legs to move to a full um, uh, evaluation. And I, I think that that's an exciting in the field because um, uh, MDS, as noted uh, by uh, everyone here, has 
um, not seeing the same amount of attention and interest and development um, in part because drugs haven't been able to really change that course of disease. Um, so I think that we are probably looking at, um, it's great that our, we're looking so far ahead. Uh, the practical next steps are identifying um, doublets that can be used and that seem like they improve upon azacitidine or decidabine alone. Um, and then moving from there, uh, kind of falling behind AML in its pathway, perhaps, um, but also thinking about alternative uh, strategies for managing these patients. So if, you get, if we have highly effective agents, um, maybe rethinking uh, the phases of treatment um, and breaking them out a little bit. So I'm excited. I think it was a good ash to show that there really are a number of agents where in one to two years, we might be talking about MDS in an entirely different fashion. About you, Ovi, like um, globally, um, if you look at your crystal ball and over the next five years, let's say, for the MDS field, uh, we have three different, or at least actually five uh, phase three trials that are ongoing with pivonizistat, magrolimab, APR246, sabatolimab, and venetoclast. It's just unprecedented time in MDS with the number of the phase three trials that are uh, ongoing. Do, do you see us going into uh, doublets and triplets and completely oral therapies, or do you think MDS patients are going to be um, unable to tolerate this type of intensity that has been seen in in uh, in other uh, the, uh, like malignant hematologic conditions? So the question was for me, Amer. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I think uh, there are two two ways to to see this from also from a European perspective. Number one, um, I think we are. Uh, I think we started in hematology with myeloma um, ten years ago. The way we are now uh, in AML, and the and I think the the status we may reach in MDS at least in uh, my, the next two or five years. So doublets, triplets, quadruplets introduction of maintenance uh, i think this is uh, this is the way to go and uh, of course the the question is at the moment if we talk about high risk mds uh, is uh, are we combining targeted treatments uh, like idh inhibitors for instance first line in patients with this kind of mutation or are we going for a rather debulking strategy with common players like venetoclax azacitin and then uh, add, for instance, um, MRD-guided, for instance, uh, additional uh, drugs to eliminate what is basically left from this kind of debulking strategy. Uh, I foresee rather the development of, uh, I would say, unselected uh, triplets, uh, of course, selected for uh, then patients with IDH mutations, but the backbone, I think, will be azavanitoclax, but also macrolimab is an very interesting uh, a combination partner for, for azacitin. What I'm a little bit sad as a European is uh, that um, uh, the US, uh, or let's say North America, is, is, is the driver of this development. I think that's perfect for you, uh, but it's a little sad for us uh, because, uh, I mean, you use azacitin now I mean, I don't mean personally, Amer, you personally, but I mean, you know, I mean you as uh, as as researchers in the U.S. You use it now already in combination with gilteritinib and others in flat three uh, relapse refractory AML, and I can give you 
tons of other examples uh, where uh, studies have been presented. And in the European Union, uh, uh, a society in Venetoclax for AML is uh, anticipated to, to, to get approved quarter, first quarter of 2021. So uh, we are basically two, almost two years behind uh, the US. And th the same is true also for other things. This is a scenario also for CAR T cells and others. So this, this is something which I really don't like. Uh, and uh, of course, not, not on a personal perspective primarily because access to, to treatment also means uh, access to research, translational research, but also for our patients uh, because they, I mean, primarily for our patients because we can, we cannot offer uh, these novel therapies uh, outside clinical trials. And so um, I think this development is something which with my impression accelerated a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, and I, we bring it here at a European level, we bring it to the attention uh, to all uh, the pharmaceutical companies being based or having headquarters also in the European Union. Uh, of course, uh, this is something which on a global perspective, we may not completely change in the future uh, because the US market, of course, is also the driver of, uh, of, uh, of research and development. <clears throat> but maybe this is something we as um, academic partners, and I count all of us here in the in the um, in the in the audience um, uh, as as potential um, um, collaborators. I think should take into account when we design clinical trials, when we talk to companies, that we at least at the at the research level, at the clinical trial level, we should work together and bring these drugs also to other parts of the world where um, maybe the access is not that easy. So again, a long answer uh, for a very simple question, but uh, this is my take home message. So I think MDS, um, a plethora of novel treatments, targeted treatments, triplets, quadruplets, whatever you can imagine happens there. Uh, but uh, also um, there is a shift uh, and, 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 and the shift with regards to access to novel drugs is uh, a little bit, um, um, I think sometimes which worries me and where we have to uh, at least communicate that this should be changed maybe in the next couple of years. Oh, I think uh, over you bring a great aspect and I think beyond only the um, clinical research component, uh, I think even for the standard of care agents, especially as more drugs get approved, uh, we're actually planning to have the subsequent session of this, uh, of this um, the MDS sessions, talking to MDS uh, in this, uh, or physicians from uh, developed uh, or developing countries, basically, especially, um, you know, you'd be surprised how many countries don't even have access to azacitidine or um, decitabine. I've met many of my colleagues. I grew personally in Jordan, so I have, I, I know a lot about what's, you know, happening there. But many other countries, um, they have very limited access to even the, the basics of azacitidine, decitabine for MDS patients. Many patients, even with high risk disease, never get considered for transplant because the age cutoff for many of these places, uh, countries is 60 or even 55 and they just, and even blood supply. So there are, I think, a lot of challenges and I think it's going to be important in the context of all these exciting developments of how we can carry um, with our pharma partners and regulators some way of trying to give these benefits to, to the rest of the world aside from the developed 
uh, and Western countries in terms of use of, of these agents, I think it's going to be a big challenge financially. Uh, Jacqueline, um, you you also worked across the AML MDS uh, spectrum. Um, how, how do you see like uh, MDS? A lot of the developments historically have usually occurred first in AML and then moved to higher risk MDS. Um, but we are finally starting to see some efforts that are focusing initially on higher risk MDS, which is somewhat of, uh, I think, a welcome trend because MDS has been historically under research compared to acute myeloid leukemia. So how, how do you see that uh, transition going back between the two diseases in terms of how patients um, uh, respond to therapies and enroll in trials? Yeah, that's a really great point. I agree with my colleagues. So um, we have been benefiting from what we've learned in AML, but we've learned so many things. One is MDS patients are still very different from AML. They're older. They can't handle the same level of toxicity. We learned that very early on with the Azacitinib Venetoclax trial, which was correctly amended to be a shorter schedule to reduce toxicity, and that has led to dur durable responses that are meaningful. So we are grateful that we can learn from what drugs are active, uh, what diseases that have uh, myeloblasts, um, but we certainly have to understand the uh, drug toxicity that's gonna be different in an older patient population. I think that, you know, a few things that I think about when I think about AML versus MDS therapies and the points that you're mentioning. Uh, one, there's toxicity, both financial and drug, right? Financial toxicity in that we now have oral decidabine as an example, which is phenomenal for access to our patients that can get it. But the cost of oral decidabine is not trivial. And if we eventually one day get venetoclax approved for patients in MDS, if it does meet its primary endpoint, that is a lot of financial toxicity to the patient. Um, having had experience with getting access to that for patients in AML, if we're moving towards all oral strategies, the cost to the system uh, might be uh, pretty substantial. And so I think when we think about what therapies will be best for an older patient population, we have to look at MDS patients slightly differently from AML. We have to think about, given the older patients, um, how, what is the quality of life? Um, and I think we'll have to borrow from patient report outcomes to really understand what meaningful increases they have as opposed to just a few weeks extra of life. Well, how meaningful is it? Is there a decreased tra uh, transformation to AML, decreased hospitalization? Are they feeling better? Um, are they able to have uh, less transfusion burden? I think we're going to ask more from our MDS data in order to put these into our older patient population. So besides financial toxicity, there's real drug toxicity that we have to look at. Having oral options, I think, will be important for this population, but certainly not if they're sick from oral therapies all the time. So I think we're going to be scrutinizing the data quite a bit. And because we actually have really exciting drugs out there from Pevanidastab, Venetoclax, uh, the TIM3 antibody, I'm sorry, Andrew, I cannot pronounce the antibody yet, <laughs> and Magrolimab, uh, we're going to be asking a lot about it. I do think now that there's more drugs that are available that not only are we interested in, is overall survival the most appropriate endpoint for MDS? I think that's a really good question that's still out there. Um, I think that things that we're going to look at is whether or not we can, uh, for instance, uh, identify subsets within MDS that would benefit from one of these uh, newer therapies or combination therapies compared to others. I think that we're gonna learn a lot about 
maybe magrolimab will be really great for P53 um, mutate patients, although I still don't fully understand the mechanism of why that cohort of patients benefits more than others. Um, and maybe that will be more beneficial compared to uh, venetoclax of the TIMF3 agent. Uh, I think that that's something we're going to be looking at. The ideal study in my mind, which I know pharma would not be excited about, would be a very large randomized study where you get randomized to these novel combinations and not these separate, isolated, large-scale studies that are, are essentially in competition with one another. Um, the last thing I do want to mention is I think that um, you know, the pandemic has really brought up a lot of real life issues um, to us that treat patients in the academic center. Most patients uh, with MDS are out in the community and a lot of patients are treated by local providers. I think that what we're seeing now, you know, having seen what's happened to our patient panel, our referral patterns, clinical trial enrollment, uh, we're really seeing the reality of what happens to patients that just can't get to us. And so uh, we're learning about how can we treat patients locally and safely. So there's a little bit more added pressure, I think, to these phase three studies, um, meaning can we get these patients access to drugs? Can they be safely delivered in the outpatient setting? Can they be given locally? I think there's a little bit more ask compared to what we've uh, done before with the NDIS trials. Um, I'm looking to see that these phase three studies offer flexibility for local administration. I think that brings in uh, more of a reality as opposed to having a biased population like who could get to the academic center and be treated there. I think that the data that comes out of these phase three studies, um, given the pandemic, might be more realistic. And as an example of that, we always compare our AZA outcome to the AZA 001, but we have often and commonly not seen the survival benefit and the high response rate that was reported in that study in the more modern um, MDS trials. So I do think the more updated phase uh, two and three studies that are ongoing might potentially reflect our new reality where we are really sharing patients with our local physicians as we should be. We're seeing who can tolerate therapies, how can patients get access to drugs. And I think that um, well, as, as, as we start to get the data out over the next couple of years, we're really going to be asking a lot more from the studies um, and be, I think it's due that we're a little bit greedier in our ask, you know, not just looking for higher response rate, maybe a few weeks extra survival. I think we're going to be asking a lot from them since there's more competitors. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the Veneto class, so maybe now we can go into some of the abstracts, uh, I think the most um, kind of uh, highlighted from, from Ash, one of them or two of them were the Veneto class abstracts. Um, you presented the frontline study update, which is an ongoing phase one, two uh, study. Um, and I think importantly, as you mentioned, uh, Veneto class was those for 14 days um, and the overall response rate was in the range of 80%, around 40% of those were complete responses, but the, I think the median survival, although the short up was limited, the median overall survival was um, um, impressive at 27 months. So um, there's an ongoing phase three trial now. Are you treating patients, uh, if you have a patient who cannot go on a trial or for whatever reason, basically, are you using venetoclast based on your, uh, based on the trial data outside of the trial setting, basically for patients based on its availability for AML? or are you only using hypomethylating agent monotherapy currently? I would say um, I'm doing my very, very best to just treat patients with venetoclax at higher risk, that have higher risk MDS only on trial. But I definitely have a small panel of patients where 
I have given it to them because they didn't quite meet eligibility, but I knew it would be safe if, if I could manage them given my experience with it. Um, and it was for patients that I knew I wanted to cyto reduce before transplant. And I know the role of cyto reduction still remains under play. Now that we have more active drugs, I think our question of the role of cyto reduction will be more substantial. Um, so I would say there are definitely patients I have considered for it, but when possible, we actually have the luxury of having several uh, MDS trials open for the upfront setting. So we've been able to have options. Um, but certainly when patients have failed uh, HMA therapy, sorry, when HMA therapy has failed some of our patients um, and from the data you've presented um, uh, from the uh, phase 1B relapse refractory MDS hypomethylene failure uh, patients, uh, we have added venetoclax in those settings when insurance has approved uh, delivery of those drugs because out of pocket, it would be way too expensive. But we have certainly used venetoclax off-label for that. Um, when possible, always do a trial, of course, but when not possible, which is the reality often, uh, the data has demonstrated that when safely administered at a 14-day dose, at a dose of 400 milligrams with proper supervision, proper lab checks, uh, clinical visits, and with antibiotic prophylaxis, you can deliver uh, combination therapy safely to patients that lead to meaningful and durable responses. So Ovi, we'll be talking about lower risk a little bit later in, in the chat, but for higher risk MDS, um, anything in particular have struck your attention from, from this ASH? We had the class data, we had updates from the Pivonidistat and uh, uh, Sabatolimab and uh, the Magrolimab, I guess, some updates and a number of agents who are in earlier phase trials. What, what caught your attention from what's going on in the high risk MDS from this ASH? Um, I think you, you you just named the um, the major players in clinical trials at the moment, and I think the major question is also given the um, advantage uh, with regards to the phase three development of pevonetistat and also venetoclax. Um, is this driving um, the decisions, and is this driving also clinical practice in the future? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, we know that the PAVO trial is the will be um, readout. The readout, I think, will be 2021. Uh, ASAVEN phase three is uh, is running at the moment uh, already. So, I think both drugs are uh, rather um, drugs for all comers. So the combination is rather an all comers combination. The same appears to be uh, true for sabotalimab and also for. Uh, for magrolimab, although magrolimab seems to have an advantage in the five uh, in the uh, PP, TP53 segment, therefore uh, I think a, a trial in AML head to head uh, has been uh, has been started. Um, but I think the the the, the major question is uh, which which combination will be our preference uh, for an unselected court of patients if the availability um, of either one is is an option and also reimbursement is an option honestly i don't know but i think the good news is at the moment that we have competition competition is always good and uh, we have also drugs like pavonetistat i just want to highlight this uh, because it's already pretty advanced uh, with regards to the clinical development, which does not seem to add a lot of toxicity uh, on top of the, let's say, no noise toxicity, uh, which is um, seen with azacidin alone. So I think it's, an, it's a safe add-on drug with an 
a significant uh, addition of uh, efficacy with regards to CR rate. And uh, the phase three, I think, will show us whether there, the, there's also improvement in survival and, 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 and other endpoints. So um, the jury is out. I don't have an answer to this, but I think we have several combination partners and one could imagine, of course, switch uh, from one to each uh, to the other if there's no response or loss of response. Um, I think that's uh, that's my my picture or my uh, what I my take home message from the from the non transplant segment in high risk MDS. So just to follow up on, on what you mentioned, so some of those drugs are IV and you know venetoclax for example is oral piponidostat is IV. Some are given every two weeks. Some are given every four weeks. And do you think? And you asked like some of the copay issues, like if some of these drugs get approved. This sometimes determine uh, for many patients what they can go on and what they cannot go on because there's a, a significant cost sharing component that comes with some of the oral agents that might not necessarily be there with um, uh, with the IV drugs, especially for Medicare patients, which the vast majority of MDS patients in the US are under Medicare. So is that in, in play in Europe do you, or do you view this as a discussion basically uh, if you have multiple IV and oral options in terms of just looking at safety and efficacy and deciding with your patient uh, what what would they like? Well, I think every patient, at least my, this is my impression, prefers, in general, prefers tablets, prefers an oral formulation. However, the median age of our patients is 72 at diagnosis. They have hypertension, they have diabetes, they have, they have, they have. So they have many, many other, uh, other diseases and uh, which requires quite often also the treatment and uh, the intake of several tablets a day for uh, the treatment of uh, other concomitant diseases. So um, I, therefore I would, I would not. I would say that's the preference. Yes, but I think uh, if let's say a drug is given every four weeks IV, uh, and that's the substitute for, for instance, uh, five days of azacitidine uh, subcutaneously in a row, I think every patient would go for the IV, uh, and every patient also would 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 prefer this uh, if this is, is uh, um, a substitute for an oral uh, decidabine or, or or whatever, uh, because you know sometimes you have GI toxicity, you sometimes forget to to, to take the drug. So, I think. Uh, we, we sometimes overemphasize this kind of oral and IV. Um, the, the, the major driver of the decision is what we recommend as doctors and what's basically the most efficacious combination or whatever treatment. And even patients would tolerate uh, three weeks of IV decidabin if it does prolong uh, uh, survival by 12 months. I mean, uh, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is quite clear. I think take patients would take every burden which comes with a treatment. I mean, I'm not talking about bone marrow transplantation now, but burden with regards to quality of life, coming to the doctor, getting IV, getting uh, getting a needle, getting whatever you, you, you may need for IV. If the drug is really superior of if the combination is really superior of what you have. So this is, uh, I think, uh, something uh, which uh, many patients to recognize. And last but not least, I think we talk about uh, the, the different situation 
uh, at different sides of the planet. I mean, Decidabin, for instance, is approved for AML in the European Union. It's not approved in your country uh, for AML. Um, other combinations may be approved or reimbursed in the US and not in the European Union. So I think also uh, the approval and uh, the um, the the nature of the data and how they are interpreted by the authorities, um, I think also drives our decisions uh, nowadays, uh, maybe much more than we did uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew, um, you know, immune checkpoint inhibition, you know, has been a major advance in solid tumors. And um, several of us uh, basically have been working on getting what I would call the traditional immune inhibition approaches, you know, PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4. And so far, the results have been somewhat mixed, and it's not clear whether we are not able to identify patient subsets who benefit from these agents. Uh, but generally, we have not seen overwhelming responses so far. And then we start to see these, what I would call novel immune checkpoint inhibitors, like the TIM-3 and the Magrolimab. And there is more excitement with, with the early data, you, you presented uh, an update on the Savatolimab uh, phase one, two study on this um, ASH meeting. So what's your sense in terms of uh, the use of these drugs? And I think Ovi brought up the point of some of the drugs adding additional myelosuppression that MDS patients might not tolerate and some other agents like uh, potentially Savatolimab or Pivonidistat or I'm not sure Magrolimab, but I guess could be along those lines, um, might not be uh, for, especially for our frail MDS patients. So maybe you can walk us through some of the data and your, your sense on where immune checkpoint inhibition is, uh, is uh, going forward in MDS. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's interesting to a few points that were mentioned earlier. Um, for a long time, MDS has been a late, uh, late, studied disease. So uh, therapies are evaluated in other diseases or evaluated in AML and then come to MDS and are tried largely on the same basis that they were used in other diseases. But um, suddenly I think at ASH this year, we did start to see more emphasis on MDS as a testing ground um, for treatments. And I think that's an exciting development because it means we might really get some uh, changes in the treatment uh, of this disease. I think that um, Historically, um, we've had some challenge with toxicity in these patients. These are older patients. I think the intergroup study showed the challenges that can be when you expand uh, therapy to more sites, and um, especially when you have a therapy where dose uh, responses are dose dependent. And so I think that uh, we may have some changes in how we approach patients. Um, uh, speaking of like debulking certain patients versus um, focusing on uh, survival or um, tolerability for other subsets of patients, we might have a transplant eligible versus transplant ineligible type of uh, segregation of patients in the future. Um, but I think that um, one area where we don't know a lot yet we think that there's great potential, particularly out of the experience with transplant and the idea of being able to stimulate some sort of graft versus leukemia effect. There's been a lot of interest in myeloid disease to um, somehow use the immune system to mod moderate and uh, maintain responses. And I think that um, you showed very nicely um, the importance of randomized trials in that setting. And the challenges that we can see with some of the traditional um, 
PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4 axis of therapies. We all, I think, have seen some experience where there can be really um, impressive responses with those agents, but I don't think we know well enough how to select patients for those um, treatments. And we did, we have run into certain toxicities that are more challenging um, when combined with HMA, for instance. Um, and so I think that it's welcoming to see a few newer agents um, that may have different ways in which they um, add to the therapy of patients, especially frail patients with MDS. I think um, the data seen from Pevanetostat does seem to suggest that it can be easily added to standard HMA um, without adding marked toxicity, at least in early phase studies. Um, the phase three will really tell us whether that's true um, and see if we can see these same high uh, response rates. And so for frail patients, for instance, where you want a quick response, um, that may be a route that we pursue um, if it ends up being approved. I think that the Mergolamab data is also very interesting. Um, I, I'd like to see more of uh, it and in a comparative fashion because so far we've had one large series of patients that um, continue to enroll and uh, show the same responses, but it's, it's harder to know until we've gone into bigger populations or at more sites. Um, but um, I think that from what I can tell of the data, um, uh, once you get past an initial uh, hemolytic uh, component, monitoring component, transfusion-dependent uh, uh, element, then subsequent treatment with that seems uh, similarly something that we can do for our more frail older patients. Um, and I think that uh, sabotolumab um, or targeting TIM3 falls uh, into this realm of uh, treatment as well. You know, TIM3 is a less well-studied immune checkpoint uh, or has been classified as an immune checkpoint blocker. I think we're still learning what TIM3 signaling does. Um, it was also early on uh, identified as a way really to sort uh, leukemic progenitors from hematocrit progenitors. A lot of the work that came out of uh, Ravi Majetti's lab at Stanford looking at as a possible marker, along with other markers that we're also exploring in AML, for instance, like CLL1 and other such uh, markers to distinguish um, stem uh, healthy versus leukemic progenitors. Um, and in the study that we uh, were involved in, um, we had interest in it for, for both of those reasons. Uh, both, we don't know what it might do to uh, these progenitors, but also because I think there is a lot of hope that um, we can use the immune system to maintain responses for more durable periods. Um, and uh, so, you know, our data has been updated now several times. I think that the ongoing long responses for some of these very high risk patients that um, are more frail um, and where having a long response probably matters a lot for 80, 85 year olds who um, you're not, you're not really planning to transplant them. You, you're just trying to extend their lives as long as possible. I think that will be a really meaningful uh, outcome. Um, the question uh, that needs to be addressed and what I think all of these studies are moving to quickly is how does that compare to azacitidine alone first? Um, a question that's on the horizon is how does that compare to some of these other combination agents? But I, I am uh, really encouraged that 
all of these studies have moved fairly quickly to randomized comparisons um, because I think we need to know um, how patients do um, when they have, uh, um, uh, you know, a placebo arm. And I think that uh, even azacitidine in TP53 patients has been a vexing question of how, just what should we expect from P53 mutated disease with HMA? Um, it's a lot of uh, retrospective series, a few uh, comparators um, in small numbers. Um, and so, you know, even these studies looking specifically at the P53 population, I think it will be really important to better define. And, and I'm glad they're all using um, a randomized comparator. Um, I, but so to the points that have been brought up, I think what we'll see emerge to a degree from these studies is that um, we will be dividing how we care for patients a little, perhaps like AML, where for some patients where we fit, find them more fit or they have a more urgent need for debulking, we'll choose certain treatment strategies. And for other patients where um, maybe we're worried about treatment intensity or our goal is really prolongation of life, but in a palliative um, setting, um, knowing that they may not have more robust future treatment options like transplant, we may uh, approach them from a different strategy. So. Um, you know, I think that uh, the three uh, agents you um, worked with and, you know, we've had or you mentioned and um, we've had the most experience here with sabotolumab, but um, all of them seem to be agents that will add to this um, uh, population that may not be able to receive more intensive treatments. At the same time, I think a big area that we're going to need to look at next um, is and, and speaking to a point also brought up earlier is perhaps sequential therapy intervening sooner than, uh, you know, by the time patients have progressed completely off of one therapy, it's very hard to salvage them. Um, and our outcomes post, uh, once patients have progressed on hypermethylene therapy are still pretty dismal. And so can we use advances in MRD and disease monitoring and having now new agents, new backbone combinations, should we be sequencing therapies? I think that that's a big area of exploration that we have on the horizon. And if we had five new drugs to combine, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden it might look very different how we approach someone and when we decide to change therapies versus historically just having one drug where you have to stay on it until, um, until it, until the wheels fall off the car, so to speak. So, yeah, no, those, those are all great points, uh, Andrew. You, you bring up, I think, in terms of sequencing of therapies and total of total therapy type of approaches, and especially in the HMA failure setting, which is very challenging so far, and how we delay or prevent that. Um, we are unfortunately running out of time to discuss through a lot of this, but I want to talk in the last few minutes about lower risk MDS because also there have been some, I think, exciting developments there. Maybe I can ask uh, Owe to talk to us about his view in, um, in management of the lower risk MDS after ESA failure. So now we have Emitilisat, which uh, Ove has updated in, in, in the meeting, but we recently had Losbetterset approved in the US. I'm not sure if it's approved yet in, in Europe or not. And then we have Roxadostat, and we have a number of uh, other inflammatory targeting type of agents as well in the pipeline. So where do you see the space uh, heading, uh, Ove? I think Low-risk MDS is um, an unrecognized target. 
uh, for development of, of, of drugs. And I think also many pharmaceutical companies now with the development of Luspadacept, I think have basically witnessed that uh, the that treatments to develop treatments for this large group of lower risk MDS patients in need of therapy with cytopenia, as you mentioned, and sometimes also failing uh, um, ESA treatment, I think is really worth also from an economic perspective, which of course is not our driver here and should not be uh, driving our discussion. But I think uh, everybody talked about uh, high risk MBS and AML also from an endpoint perspective and uh, that this was appeared to be more appealing uh, um, as a subgroup of patients with mild neoplasm. But I think the, the story of Luspadacept was therefore very important. So yes, uh, imetastat you just mentioned, is an interesting um, um, a drug also uh, with regards to the way it is administered to our lower risk MDS patients where quality of life, is, as we know, is very important. Less visits uh, at the doctor, less transfusions. This drug is given IV every four weeks in a very easy way, um, a two hours infusion. And apart from heme toxicity, uh, the drug is very well tolerated and uh, I think I was also impressed by the data and by seeing also a couple of my own patients being a transfusion independent for sometimes years. Uh, and uh, this is with a single agent, I think is quite impressive. So let's see how the phase three um, works out. Um, I think uh, we all hope that we get maybe another drug in our hand for our patients. But again, we are just about to start to understand the biology of low-risk MDS and maybe also the way we can combine uh, the, 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 the drugs current in, in development or already in place. Um, and um, I think the diversity of, uh, of the disease and the biology is, is uh, immense is is uh, I think much more than in in the higher risk segment. Uh, also from a, a driver mutation perspective and from the pathways involved, you 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 also already mentioned inflammation uh, as an. But again, I think the, the inflammation story is it seems super simple and super straightforward. But honestly, I don't think it is the case. I think it's not like uh, uh, you just give. Uh, um, X, Y, Z anti-inflammatory treatment, and then everything is resolved. I think it's much more complex and uh, we will delineate and we will identify super small subsets of patients where a given treatment, a targeted therapy may work. Yeah, certainly a lot of exciting developments in lower risk MDS. So in the final couple of minutes, uh, I just, if, if each one of you has any Final thoughts, basically any quick abstracts they like to highlight or any concluding remarks, maybe in one minute or less for each. I'll start with, uh, with Jacqueline. Yeah, I, um, again, uh, I was very uh, happy to present the updated ASA-VEN data that showed the prolonged overall survival, which was highly encouraging, and I think leads to a lot of enthusiasm for what might happen with the phase three. Um, and of course, you already mentioned uh, Andy's TIM3 trial, which was really exciting to see uh, broad responses, tolerability, and with the Pivonetta stat, the decrease um, in AE profile, or not decrease, sorry, the, the relative tolerability of the addition of the add-on compared to society alone. Um, a couple other abstracts that I thought were uh, interesting at the study was the presentation of decidabine versus hydria um, for the patients with CMML. 
um, and how uh, it looked like Hydria still remains a solid frontline therapy. Disappointingly, I know a lot of us, or at least me, I give decidamine to a lot of patients who are highly proliferative, thinking that will be the answer. Um, and that's, it seems like I'm treating myself and not necessarily the patient based on how this data is coming out. Um, it also highlights the point that, that it remains a camp of an underserved population where we really need to do more. So I'm hopeful that CMML will be our new, quote, MDS in a couple of years where we'll offer and see more abstracts and data that's exciting for those groups that are often ridiculously excluded from trials. Um, and so that would be something I look forward to. Um, similarly, how there's a lot of enthusiasm for treating lower risk MDS, um, the phase three LEN versus placebo for the non-transfusion dependent patients. Like, can we treat them very early? If so, how early? And is that safe? I thought that data was really interesting um, using LEN five milligrams daily. Um, versus placebo um, and patients with, I believe it's like 50, 60% um, uh, prevention of transfusion dependence. I thought that was really uh, important, especially because transfusion burden is a huge problem for our low-risk MDS patients. Uh, lenalidomide uh, is a really great drug, interesting drug for those of 5Q-DEL, but long-term toxicity is something I'd like to see from that readout. You know, when we start to try to treat patients and intervene early, we then want to know what type of trouble might we be causing. I think there was a little bit of an early signal of secondary malignancies. So I'd like to see how that pans out. We have certainly seen that when we've done that to uh, patients uh, with lymphoid conditions. Um, so overall, a lot of great, exciting therapy studies. There was a bit more emphasis on machine learning, trying to find more tools to help us potentially once we get all this data from the randomized uh, phase three and phase two studies, maybe the machine learning models that were presented can then be adapted to help us select proper therapies for patients based on either frailty, presenting characteristics, or even mutational subsets. No, that's that's fantastic summary, uh, Jackie. Ove, any any final remarks? No, I think I think we covered everything and we would, would require another four hours uh, <laughs> for to, sure. to, to, to get into detail, but I very much enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, no, I think that was a Jacqueline provided an excellent overview of a lot of the highlights of the meeting. Um, I would be remiss, even though our work is really to try to uh, replace the need for transplant. The BMT CTN eleven oh two study emphasized what we um, had long suspected out of um, randomized or retrospective or smaller series of patients that, you know, I think uh, the reality is uh, early transplant for our higher risk patients remains a cornerstone of care, um, is underutilized. And um, I think that it was a very important uh, study to be presented. Um, in particular, I think the biggest takeaway for me um, was that the survival curves split towards transplant from the very beginning. And I think we're often struggling with patients about counseling who might be on the fence uh, based on the toxicity or the risk of um, transplant. And the reality is MDS, high-risk MDS, has a lot of risk itself. Um, and um, so I, while I hope we continue to find new therapies that maybe someday will negate the need to transplant patients, um, it is really important that we design trials that incorporate transplant as an option. Um, and we continue to emphasize that to our patients who might be eligible. Very well said, and thank you so much. As always said, we probably can go into hours to try to cover everything in ASH. Uh, 2020 was a very difficult year for everybody, with, you know, on, especially with, with the COVID situation. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see a lot of still clinical research going on and 
a lot of exciting drugs moving forward. So thank you so much again for this discussion and happy holidays and happy new year and look forward to talking to you soon after the next meetings about additional updates. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at @vjhemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit vjhemonk.com for cutting edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all of the latest news in the field of MDS. And be sure to subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.